Okay, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you once again for the opportunity that we have to be together, to um, together to take a dive into your word, to learn more about you. And Lord, I just ask for your blessing upon this time. I pray that you would be with each one of us, help us to be able to, to learn from you to, tonight. I ask that you would be with me. Help me to have clarity of thought. I pray that I would be filled with your spirit and that what would come out of my mouth would be clear, but accurate and truthful and faithful to you. Pray that you would be glorified in our time together. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, when we start our study on January 23rd next year, um, we will have the joy of seeking to know and understand more fully about God um, through studying the specific statutes of the law. But for today, we are wrapping up the first half of our study in Deuteronomy. And coincidentally, Moses is also wrapping up this portion of his sermon. So that was really helpful. Um, he summarizes the heart of what he's been trying, seeking to communicate through his sermon. And what is it that he's seeking to communicate? Well, Peter Kregel, in his commentary, words it this way. He says, Deuteronomy is a book about a community being prepared for a new life. Hardship and the wilderness lie behind them. The promised land lies ahead. But in the present moment, there is a call for a new commitment to God and a fresh understanding of the nature of the community of God's people. And I thought that was a great summary of all that we've been studying this semester and of the chapter that we're looking at tonight. So in its context, the people whom God is addressing in Deuteronomy are, is the nation of Israel. They need to know what it means to be a chosen people. They need to understand what it means to be God's inheritance. They need to know what it means to be his vassals, his servants, his people. And just because this book was written in a specific period of time for a specific people does not mean it has no relevance for us today. Because we who have the whole of scriptures know that the church today consists of people who have trusted by faith in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people who have trusted by faith are the people of God. They are the new Israel. They are a people who have been chosen by God, a people of his own treasured possession. And just like the original recipients of these words, we are a community of people being prepared for a new life. Hardship and the wilderness actually don't lie behind us. We're still living in it. We're in the midst of it. But the promised land, the future, does lie ahead of us. And at this present moment, God, through his prophet Moses, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is calling us to have a new understanding of what it means to be the people of God and to commit ourselves anew today to him. So let's dive in to our text and see what the Lord has for us today. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. <clears throat> the word of the Lord says, And now, Israel, and now, today, right now, Israel, you who are the people of God, in view of God's mercy, 
So in view of the fact of what we saw last week, that they, the people of God, the Israelites, deserve destruction because of their unrighteousness, and in view of God's amazing grace, this is what God is requiring of you. Continue with verse 12 again. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. What a powerful summary statement this is. In one sentence, Moses pulls together everything he's been saying throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy, and he pulls together what, the heart, what it means, what's at the heart of what it means to be the people of God. Those who are called by his name, they're the ones who will walk in all of his ways, who love him, who serve him, who keep his commandments. This is what defines them. This is what they are. This is what sets them apart out of all of the people of the world. Now notice with me that these are requirements. These aren't optionals. He's not saying, if you want to, you can be this. But if not, that's okay too. Whatever. These are requirements. It's not an optional list of things for the people of God to be. Notice also that the text teaches us that these requirements are for your good. He says that in verse 13, and keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. These are good commandments. These requirements are good requirements because they come from a good God who can do nothing but good to his people. This good God, who is our good king, does good to all of his people. And it is good for them to walk in faithfulness to him. He is in reality calling his people to walk in the good life. Now, I am struck once again by the goodness of God. And I'm also struck by the truth that the evil one from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden has been telling the lie that God is not good. He is withholding good from you. That's the lie that caused Adam and Eve to fall. And it's the lie that you and I hear every single day of our lives. God is withholding good from you. Why else are you suffering right now? Why is life so hard? God is withholding something good for, from you. There is something out there that will satisfy you, that will fill you, that, that God is withholding. You need to go and get that in order for you to be happy. This is the lie that each one of us are tempted with all the time. Not just every day, but multiple times throughout each and every day. And I am just so deeply grateful to the Lord who gives us his word, which speaks the truth about God's character to us, so that we may know that this is the lie over here, that he is good and all his ways are good and his commandments are good and his ways lead us to the good life, the life of flourishing. We're going to see that as we go through the text. 
Notice that the commandments are for your good. Notice also with me that these commandments, these five requirements that we're looking at today specifically are not new. Listen to how many times these five requirements are mentioned throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Well, ten times in Deuteronomy we're told to walk in his ways. We're told to love God eight times. We're told to serve God six times, but the idea of serving God is mentioned three times. The idea that this, what, what God is calling us to, this relationship and this religion that is to be practiced with all your heart and all your soul, that's mentioned to us 22 times in Scripture. And, the, and keeping the commandments, that is mentioned 65 times. 65! If repetition signifies importance, then these requirements here in this passage are very important. Let's look for a moment at these requirements. The first one is foundational. It's fear the Lord. It's not accidental that God put this first because it begins and it's foundational. All of the rest of the requirements are built on fear of the Lord. We're told in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is foundational. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, the writer of Hebrews actually describes it very well for us um, when he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The fear of the Lord is to respond to God, to approach God, to worship God, to live for God with reverence and awe for him. How does the fear of the Lord get stirred in our hearts? Well, it gets stirred in our hearts by seeing God, beholding him, recognizing him. We're going to talk more about that in just a few minutes, but let me just first set the stage for that. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And then in verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Scripture is saturated saturated with texts that describe the greatness and transcendence of God. His greatness, his awesomeness, his sovereignty, his infinite power should draw out of all of his creation a sense of fear and awe and reverence and wonder. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the second one is, if you fear God, you will walk in his ways. Walking according to God's word, the way he designed his world, and the way he designed humanity to live way back in the garden before the fall. This is revealed to us in the word of God. This is revealed to us in scripture. And when we walk according to God's word, we are walking according to his ways. The third requirement that God gives us is to love him. The fear of God leads to loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. This is the great commandment of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But to love God is not just to say the words, I love you, God, all the time. I just love him. 
although we ought to say the words. To love God is not just a feeling, feeling happy about God, although we should at times experience feeling of love. To love God is not to, to lift your hands in worship and to sing a song, although we ought to sing praise to him. But scripture teaches us that to love God is the last two requirements. It's to serve the Lord with your whole heart and with your whole soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. To love God is to walk in submission and obedience to him. This is how we express love for God. This is what God calls us to do. Jesus also said that in John chapter 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To love God is to obey him. These are the God's requirements for his people. And in living out these requirements, we are doing what we were made to do. We are glorifying God, for he is worthy. But I think, you can tell by looking at these requirements, that these are not just outward works. You can't just put this on. You can't just decide today, I'm going to just do all of this stuff on this list, and I'm just going to set my mind to it and set my heart to it, and I'm just going to do it. These requirements are an outward manifestation, something that's visible, that reveals something that has happened inwardly. They are indicative of a changed heart. Let's continue on with our text. Verse 14 says, behold. Now, you know I love the word behold. I'm always talking about it. Every time I see it in the text, I have to draw your attention to it. Behold means to behold. It means to see, to look at, to gaze upon, to, to keep on seeing, to keep on looking. And what is it that they, he is asking them to behold? They are being called to behold a couple of things. They are called to behold God, and they are called to behold his supremacy. And so they're supposed to see God. And Moses has done a fabulous job in, in testifying and painting for us and telling us who God is. And he was calling the, his people, he's calling them to behold him, to meditate on him. Now, biblical meditation is different than worldly meditation. Worldly meditation is telling you to empty your mind of all of your thoughts. I have no idea what that would be like. That is an impossibility to empty the mind, in my estimation. Biblical meditation, however, is a filling of your mind. You are being called to fill your mind, fill your thoughts with thoughts about truths about God, who He is. And in this text specifically, he calls the people to meditate and behold God and his supremacy and God and his election of his people. Continue on with verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. What a simple statement. But think about it. Think about all of creation. Think about the universe. Think about the vastness of the heavens. Galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. God transcends all of that. He created it and all of the galaxies. The billions of stars belong to him. 
He owns it all. He holds it all together. And all of the earth and all that is in the earth, he created all of it. Every molecule, every cell, all that is visible, all that is invisible, God has made it and he owns it all. Behold the transcendent God who created all things, but also behold his election. Look at verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring, you above all peoples as you are this day. This transcendent God, who is the owner of heaven and earth, who has created all things, all things belong to him. As you behold him and your heart swells with reverence and awe for him, remember that it was this very same God who set his heart of love upon a people. He chose their fathers. He chose the offspring after them. And guess what, ladies? We here sitting today are the offspring of Abraham through faith. So this election carries forward to us. When we think about the fact that God, this God who is beyond our ability to even grasp a hold of, would set his love upon us, choosing us out of all the people in the world to be his very own. Meditating on these truths can stir our hearts in, in reverence and awe and wonder for God. It's a key ingredient in a transformed heart. Look at verse 16. He says, circumcise therefore, in light of this, in light of who God is, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. We talked so much last week about the stubbornness of Israel and how they were continually resisting God. And we could see that stubbornness living inside our own hearts because we're all just like they were. And so here he's saying to circumcise, therefore, in light of who God's, his transcendence, in light of his election, in light of him choosing you and setting his love for you, circumcise your heart. So what, let's talk about that a little bit. Circumcision in the flesh is basically, without getting graphic, a cutting away of skin. It involves pain. It involves blood. It involves change. And so what is he saying? What is he teaching about the circumcision of the heart? There is a purification that needs to happen. There is a cutting away of the flesh of our hearts so that we have hearts that are no longer stubborn, but hearts that are soft and pliable. Hearts that are open and ready to receive God's word. So how does a heart get circumcised? How does that happen? Does God do it? Do we do it? Do both of us do it? We talked a lot about that in our small group. Well, Romans 2.29, Paul talks about the circumcision of the heart, and he says this, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So that means what he's saying is that the law itself cannot change our hearts. The law is good. It's amazing. It's for our good. It leads us to the good life, but it can't change our hearts. 
Only the Spirit can do that. Only God can change our hearts. Moses says also in Deuteronomy 30, um, chapter 30, verse 6, and we're going to be looking at this next semester, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, that you may live. So God, by his Spirit, is circumcising our hearts. And that's when he gives us a new heart, this new heart of salvation. When he sets his love on us, He is. that's what he's doing. He is circumcising the heart so that we would love him, so that we would walk in in obedience to him. But there's something that we bring to the table too. Once God has given us this new heart, once we have a circumcised heart, we continue to circumcise our hearts through beholding God, through repenting of our sin, and through turning and continuing to walk in faithfulness and obedience to him. This relationship that we have with God, that God is establishing with us, is a relationship of the heart. It has always been. It always will be. It's always a relationship about the heart. It starts in the heart and is birthed outwards in the way that we live. And it was even back in the Old Testament. God does not accept a person based upon their external condition. He does not look at people and choose them based upon anything in them. And that's what Moses is saying in the next few verses. Verse 17, look with me at that. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Moses just can't stop saying about how great God is. He just can't stop himself. He is the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He's still talking about the heart. God is the one who looks at the heart. He does not look at people and with partiality pick all the better ones, pick the ones who are wealthy. He doesn't look at people and he doesn't pick them based on their gender. This is what Moses is communicating here. He is impartial. This is not about who you are. What is your status? Are you male or are you female? Are you rich or are you poor? God does not work in that way. In fact, God is the God who executes justice for the ones that are often overlooked in society. Nor does he take bribes. An example of a bribe would be, I will do this for you, God, if you will just bless me. He will not allow us to bring our good works to the table as bribes. He is a God who cannot be bribed. It has to be the heart that is changed. And that he does on our behalf. He's the one that changes our hearts, and then we are changed as we behold him. He doesn't um, choose based upon ethnicity. It says in verse 18 that, that he loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. The sojourners were people who were residing within Israel as they were not Israelites, but they were becoming a part of the people of God. There were Egyptians who left through the Exodus that became a part of the people of Israel, but yet they were sojourners living amongst them. 
We have examples of people like Rahab. They weren't ethnically Jewish, and yet they were a part. They became, they lived in with the people of God. And when God sent manna down from heaven, the sojourner had manna too. And when God preserved in the wilderness their clothing and their shoes so that it would not wear out, the sojourner's clothing and shoes were also provided, lasted for them. So God, what Moses is, is seeking to help us to understand is that this relationship is not based on the rich or the poor or the wise or the simple. He does it, it's based on the heart. And he even calls the people in verse 19, he says, love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. We, as God's people, will become, as we behold him, like the one we are beholding. We see that God is the one who is impartial, that does not take bribes, who loves the sojourner. We recognize that that's how it been his disposition toward us. And therefore, then, we live in the same way that he has treated us to other people. Over and over again, we are told through scripture that God's relationship with his people is a relationship of the heart. This is why he reveals himself, so that our hearts of stone would be melted, so that stubborn hearts would be cut to the quick and become soft, so that we would, as verse 20 says, verse, look with me at verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He's talking about total and complete allegiance to the God who has redeemed you. Verse 21, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. It is a circumcised heart, a heart that is soft and pliable and not stubborn, that fears, serves, and holds fast to the Lord and swears allegiance to him. And he is your praise. Notice that he doesn't say, you praise him. It says that he, God himself, is your praise. He is your God. He is the one in whom you delight in. Because, why? Because your eyes have seen. He's talking about experiencing God's goodness in your life. Your eyes have seen, you have tasted for yourself his goodness. You have seen how he has acted in history and in your present. For the people of Israel, they could just look around at each other and see God's wondrous deeds in their life because they had gone down into Egypt as 70 people, and now they were millions. All they had to do was look at their neighbor, and they could see the wondrous deeds of God and experience it. He is your praise, and he is your God. So what does the Lord require? He requires a circumcised heart that fears, walks, loves, serves, and obeys the Lord, for he is your praise. And this is what it means to be in relationship with God. This is what it means to belong to God as his chosen people, his treasured possession. Now, when I look at this list of requirements, I cannot help when I read them to see, I cannot help but see Jesus. I cannot help it. He and he alone 
perfectly, perfectly fulfilled these requirements. He and he alone feared the Lord completely. He revered him. He worshiped him in reverence and awe. He walked in all of his ways. He loved the Lord God with all of his heart. He served him with everything that was in him. And he kept all of the commandments and statutes perfectly every day, all day, all the days of his life. He lived this out perfectly. We can't help but see him in Deuteronomy when we read these requirements of the law. And because he lived these out perfectly, he became for us our substitute. He lived it on behalf of us. We can't do it. We could never do what he has done. We could try every day, all day, on our own strength. We cannot do it like he did it. And so he stepped in and took our place. He did it for us. And when we come to faith in Jesus, what is credited to us is righteousness, perfect, complete, as if we lived out these requirements perfectly like he did. And not only does he give us his righteousness, but he took on our judgment. He took on the curse for us. When you don't fulfill the requirements of the law, it puts us under the curse. But Jesus willingly stepped in and was cursed on the cross and then gave us his perfect, clean record. He is the fulfillment of these requirements. He is our substitute. But he's also our example. Because as we read the New Testament and as we read the Gospels and we see Jesus living and carrying on his ministry, we are seeing the Word made flesh. These requirements in Deuteronomy chapter 10 are lived out. We can see it as his disciples testified to him. He shows us how it looks in life. He shows us what this looks like. And so when we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we are reminded that one of the things that the New Testament teaches us is that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. He says, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you hear what that's saying? We are, who've been called, who've been given new hearts, born again by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are being changed from our old way of living to a new way of living. We are being conformed into the image of Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, who lived out Deuteronomy 10 and the requirements perfectly. So this gives us a picture of what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives, how he's transforming us. He's transforming us to be a people who, like their master Jesus, fear the Lord, walk in all of his ways, love him, serve him, and keep all of his commandments. Isn't that amazing? This is what we're being transformed into. And one of the things that comes with a changed heart 
is that desire. There's a desire to obey. This is not begrudging submission. This is submission and allegiance from the heart. Now, back to the text and back to Israel. It is this that the people of Israel are being called to, like us, to be soft, submissive, and allegiance to the God who redeemed them. And because God is good and because he loves them, he wants their obedience. Because obedience is how they will experience the blessing, the blessed life. Now, we have to make an honest admission here that even with new hearts, even with our circumcised hearts, obedience is hard. This is not easy. This is a battle. This is a fight. And so Moses continues on giving some encouraging motivation, reminding them to, um, of some truths that should motivate them as they struggle to obey. These are the same things that we can take today in our own lives. So as we go through chapter 11, we're going to summarize a lot of the text in chapter 11, just you know, go through it very, very quickly. Moses is going to follow a pattern of repetition. He gives a command, and then he tells you why. The motivation. What is it that you need to that will motivate you to obey the command? Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna fly through this pretty quickly, I think. So let's look at chapter eleven, and verse one. And the first thing he wants to remind them of, the first motivation is the discipline of the Lord. Let's look together at verse one. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known it or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God. So consider today, and he says, I'm speaking to you, not your children, to you, the ones that have experienced the discipline of the Lord. Not that they can't learn, not that they can't hear, not that they can't be motivated by this, but he wants them to remember specifically how the Lord had disciplined them throughout the past. Now, when we think about the discipline of the Lord, I don't want us to think punitive. I don't want us to think corporal punishment. I want us to think about the word discipline as discipling, teaching. The Lord is teaching. He's disciplining those whom he loves. And that discipline can have positive or negative reinforcements. And so what Moses does is he begins to remind them of some specific times that the Lord was disciplining them and teaching them. And we've, we've covered almost all of these repeatedly. First, he talks about the Exodus, and he tells them to consider the Exodus. Remember the Exodus. This is the time when God redeemed them. This is their redemption. Through the blood of a lamb, through the waters of the Red Sea, God brought Israel out of slavery and into relationship, into covenant relationship with himself. This pictures for us salvation and what's happening in salvation. And so he reminds them, he says, when you're struggling to obey me, I want you to remember your salvation. Remember your redemption. Remember all the mighty works that I did on your behalf as I set you free. Remember what I did to the Pharaoh. Remember what I did to the, the armies. So remember the Exodus. And then he goes to the wilderness and he reminds them again what God had done for them in the wilderness and how the Lord disciplined them through the wilderness, how his presence was with them 
all the while that they were in the wilderness, we learned that he carried them as a father carries his son. He provided for them manna from heaven and water from rocks. He made sure their clothes didn't wear out. He protected them. So consider, remember, it's, it's another, consider is another way of beholding God's teaching you as you went through your wilderness, as you went through your, your series of suffering. And then the third incident that he uses in, as an example where God was teaching them was this incident with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. Now, Dathan and Abiram were a part of a, part of a coup that happened in Israel where the sons of Korah and these guys, there were hundreds of people that were rebelling against Moses. They wanted to overthrow him. And here's the thing. In so doing, what they were trying to do was overthrow God. And so God brought down judgment on them. He split open the earth and they and their families and all of their possessions went down into what, what the scripture tells us is Sheol. They were gone right before the eyes of Israel. Consider God's judgment as a motivation for obedience. Verse 7 says, For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Their eyes, again, speaking to the fact that they've experienced the work of God personally in their lives. They have seen it. Consider this. Think about it. Meditate on these great works that you've experienced. Now, I just want us to, to remember that the great works of God are still happening today. They're still happening in each of our lives. Do we have eyes to see? Consider this in your struggle for obedience. He is still working. We are in such a privileged place, position in redemptive history. We have the whole of Scripture that we can consider about the great works of God. We have Jesus. We have 2,000 years of church history where we can see how God has providentially moved and brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's been faithful to his word. But each one of us also experiences personally God's work in our lives. Just by one, one thing. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is any desire in your heart to love him and, and, and to serve him, to obey him, if you've been born again, you have personally, by the power of God, been brought from death into life. You've experienced resurrection from the dead. Let that fill you with wonder. That is just one example. There are billions more if we have eyes to see. And these all serve as motivators to, to spur us on to love and obedience to God. Moses then turns our attention away from the past into the work of God in the past and considering the past and all that he's done to the future. Look at verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So here's the command again. And then the motivation for keeping the commandment is that you would be strong, that you would take possession of the land. 
long life in the land. These things, these are motivators for the people of Israel to, to be obedient to God. But also, I want us to see that the land itself is a motivator. He's calling on them to, to consider the land itself that God has promised, their inheritance. It's a land described as flowing with milk and honey. It has valleys and hills that drink rain from heaven. God's eyes are upon the land all of the time, and he cares for it. And we're told that it's a land that's not like Egypt. He wants to make this clear. It's not like Egypt. And I think there's a point being made here because those two guys, Dathan and Abiram, when they were in their rebellion against Moses, one of the things that they said was that God had taken them out of the land flowing with milk and honey, brought them out to a wilderness to die. So they were saying that Egypt, the place of slavery, was the land flowing with milk and honey. And what God had promised was not. And what Moses is saying is, that is a lie. That was not Eden. So the idea of the promise that God is, is giving to them, their inheritance, this land that's flowing with milk and honey, this land that is not anything like the land that they had come from, is, is supposed to stir a remembrance in their heart of Eden. He's talking about... Eden and the promise of that, that flourishing that, was, that we had lost when we fell into sin and the restoration of Eden and the restoration of that intimacy with God. It's pointing, it's shadowing to that. Now, I want to make a little bit of application to us today. Sometimes we think about the promised land, and, I've been, and I think it's true. In reality, we think about it as, as heaven. Like, so we're looking forward to the promised land when we go to heaven. But I think we live in this place of the already, but not yet. We are already beginning to taste the first fruits of the promised land, even now. And this, this kingdom that we've been brought out from, the kingdom of, um, we've been brought out from the kingdom of darkness, which is kind of like Egypt was, and we brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, which is the, the promised land, you can't even compare. In the text, he tells them that the land that they're going to is being watered from heaven. But in the land that they were in, they could get no fruit from their gardens unless they dug trenches and they had to carry water with their feet and their hands back and forth, back and forth. And he gives this picture of this endless work to get a little bit of fruit. And that reminds me of what it means to be in the kingdom of darkness, the slavery that is there. But when we're brought into the kingdom of, of the beloved son, the fruitfulness, we are watered by the waters from heaven. We are given the living water, bread from heaven. We have the eye of God, our Father, on us at all times, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? He tells us in Matthew 6, 25, to not be anxious for anything, right? You remember that passage? He says, what, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what's going to, what you're going to wear and all these things. He says, look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather. 
and yet your heavenly Father cares for them. Are you not more valuable than they? Let that idea, that principle, that truth about what we've been brought into, the kingdom of the beloved Son, be the motivator to obey the word of God. Let's continue on. I'm running out of time. Verse 13, I think. Yes, verse 13. Jump down to verse 13. It says, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the late rain, and you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Do you hear the echoes of Genesis and, and the way that God is so generous to his people and how he fills his people with all good things? His generosity can be a motivator for our obedience. He is a generous and good God. But he sends a little warning, verse 16, Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. You see, the gods in Canaan, in, in the land of Canaan, the people believed that the Baals were the ones that watered the ground. And so he's warning his people, it is I, I'm the one that generously gives to you. I'm the one that will fill you. I'm the one that will satisfy you. Be careful that you are not deceived and you don't think that it's these Baals that will do that for you. Because if you think that, he says in verse 17, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. And I just want us to understand what is being said here. If you are going to pursue other things for fullness and satisfaction, you will dry up because they cannot satisfy. They cannot satisfy you. Only God can fill you with good things. Let that be a motivator for obedience. Let's continue on in verse 18. It says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Teach them to your children. And then he goes on and basically summarizes um, the Shema once again and talks about the word, the word of Moses, the word of God, holding fast to it, putting it before you, on your doorposts, on your arms, and on frontlets on your head, teaching it to your children as you go, as you walk. And it's the word of God that will help keep us from being deceived and finding satisfaction in other gods or seeking satisfaction. You can't find it. Seeking satisfaction in other ways. The word of God guards against deception. Hold fast to it. Meditate on it. Have it ever before you. Put it in your heart. Teach it to your children. Speak it. This is how truth is passed, the faith is passed from generation to generation, is by the word of God being passed down and taught to children and grandchildren. And third, the word of God leads to obedience. It leads us, it reminds, me of, it reminds us of God's commandments, and it reminds us of the victories that God has promised in battle. Look at verse 22. Jump down to verse 22. He says, for 
If you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, now we have the motivation, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot tread shall be yours. Do you hear what's being said here? God has promised a victory for them as they enter the land. He has said, you're going to go into battle. You're going to fight battles. And your victory is sure. It is guaranteed. Let that be the motivation for walking in obedience. The victory has already been won. They had literal battles that they were going to fight with swords and spears, facing death. But this still applies to us today. We too are fighting battles. We are in a spiritual war. We are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The biggest battle that we have is with our own flesh. But yet, Christ has been victorious. He has said the battle is already won. The very fact that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it should be motivation for us to be obedience. The victory is ours. Our victory against sin is guaranteed by Jesus. Walk in that. Let that motivate you. But there's other battles that we're fighting. There is the battle um, taking back the nations, proclaiming the gospel, bringing the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. That is not an easy task that Jesus has left us to do. We've talked about this in previous weeks. We dispossess the land with the gospel, and that victory has already been won because the end of the book tells us that in heaven, every tongue and every nation and every people group, there will be people surrounding the throne. The victory is won. And we just have to remember that the victory has already been won and let that be the motivator for going out in obedience, for obediently fighting against our sin, for obediently sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel wherever we go. These motivations, these motivations are, are given to us to help to remind us of how to live and walk in, the, in, in obedience to the requirements that God has set before us. And now Moses concludes this part of his sermon with extending an invitation to the people of Israel. He's extending an invitation for them to commit to God. He says in verse 26, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandment of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commandment of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. So obedience leads to blessing, and disobedience leads to cursing. This is a repeated theme throughout all of Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at it next semester again. They are being called to set this before them. Set this truth before them. Remember this. They're being called to do that today. And they're also, in the rest of the, the chapter, being called to do that when they get into the land. So this is not a once-and-done deal to set before you the truth 
about the blessing and the curse, the blessing and the curse. And I think for us today, that has a lot to do with being able to experience the blessing because we know that in truth, Christ took on the curse for us. And we are given every spiritual blessing that we can experience that blessing more fully and more richly as we walk in obedience to him. So before Israel today is an invitation into the blessed life. Before you and I today is an invitation into the blessed life. Jesus is the true and better Moses who through his word is calling us today to commit ourselves to him exclusively for he has come that we his people may have life and life to the full in the here and now and in the life to come jesus is calling us to commit to him choose you this day whom you will serve choose jesus choose life choose blessing let's pray heavenly father we're so grateful to you for the word of god that your word that is has the power to transform our lives. So Lord, we ask for that. We ask that you, by the power of your spirit through the word of God and through the body of believers that you would conform us to the image of your son as we earnestly seek you um, in your word. I pray that you would soften our, soften our hearts and, and give us eyes to see and be able to behold you, behold your supremacy, behold your election of us, your choosing of us, your saving of us. Lord, help us to see your works, mighty works in our lives. And I pray that we would be transformed by what we see about who you are and all that you have done. I, I ask that you would um, continue to work and bless us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.